1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll be in verse 13 through 17. But before we get there, uh, we've said it every week since the beginning, but 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, which we will get to eventually, um, is where we find Peter's purpose for writing this letter, and it will be up here in 1 Peter 5, 12. He says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So what God is after in inspiring these words to us is that there are false graces out there. There are false graces out there like mirages that we think are solid ground to stand on, but they cause us to sink and drown. For our original audience, there are no telling how many false graces they see out there on the horizon. Because Nero, the emperor of Rome at the time in AD 60, was killing Christians. And I actually have uh, an artist depiction on this one. I'll send it to you guys later if it doesn't come up, but there. So as you can see, these are uh, just some Christians that, uh, that Nero was killing. You can see all of Rome is in attendance at the time. Um, this is all, this is for a sport. This is a circus. These are Christians praying to God. You can see those fires, those torches are also Christians that were hung up. And then these lions have just been let out of their cage to go and do what they will with the rest of the Christians. However, by the grace of God, these Christians, the one that Peter is writing to, they were just exiled by the grace of God. There's really no other explanation. And so they've been dispersed throughout all of modern-day Turkey just trying to live. But imagine with me for a second. You're a Christian. But because of your belief in Christ, you're blamed for the, burn, for the burning down of Dallas. And so now fellow believers that you know in Dallas are being torched and killed. And the mayor is laughing and loving it all. You're forced from your home with your kids and family and all the belongings that you're able to bring. And you're setting off for Canada where it's safe. The neighbors you have, if they aren't at your door with weapons to force you out of the mob, force you out with the mob, they're hiding behind their curtains for fear of knowing you at all. They're no longer acquainted with you. The friends that you have that are unbelievers completely disown you or they're at your door attacking you. You have no friends any longer. And if anyone does attack you, it's condoned by the police if they aren't attacking you themselves. So there is no calling 911. The friends you have that are believers are exiled too, but it's not like we can congregate. We have to keep the parties small so that we can get through safely. And those people you knew that said they were believers, that maybe you even went to church with, some of them have completely renounced the faith in order just to stay safe. Maybe that looks like a better way to live. Maybe that looks like a grace. But there is a true grace of God to stand firm in. What is it? The true grace of God is this. God, through Peter, says in chapter 4, Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Suffering now, glory for eternity. This is the true grace of God. When we are following Christ and our whole life falls apart, it doesn't mean that God has turned against us. It's quite actually the opposite. We're entering into the true grace of God in suffering. Therefore, Peter's point, don't run. It's nothing but a false grace to stand in, stand firm in the true grace of God. So how do we, you and I, 
as exiles of heaven, living in this area where we live, in this land of a severe suffering, how do we stand firm in the true grace of God? From our verses this morning, be zealous for what is good. If you look at verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And then skip down to verse 17 for me. For it is better. Here is the better grace to stand firm in, to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So the argument laid out is this. If we are zealous for what is good, there's nothing that can harm us. And if we suffer for righteousness' sake, which is for being zealous for what is good, we will be blessed still. So whatever it means then for us to be zealous for good, we want that. How do we do it? Let's read the whole passage. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a time as this that we get to come together as a family, as a body of believers. And we pray that in this time that you would remove any distraction, any stress that we are feeling or, or that we have that's on the forefront of our minds. And we pray that, that in this time as well, God, that you, would, that you would cleanse us from our sin. That as we sit right now, that you would cause our hearts to be repentant. That we would speak with you as we read your word and we would repent of our sins. So that we may be made righteous, so that we may be made clean yet again. In all of this, God, it is a work that only you can do. Only you can change a sinner's heart. So would you do that, God? Would you do the surgery needed on our hearts to make us look a little more like Jesus today? In all of this, we thank you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we do this. Amen. Let's begin by taking a look at the argument of the text with the first question. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? This is a rhetorical question. We shouldn't have a list of names. You know, like they probably did have a list of names. Like, oh, well, hold on, I've got a, got a few people that are trying to harm me. Um, but this should make us come to the realization that in Jesus, the answer to this question is no one, really. But this is wrong, right? Because they're fleeing for a reason, right? We just saw what's happening. The distinction is that we can be hurt but we cannot be harmed. The word for harm here is in the book of Acts five times and here once and every single time it means the ultimate harm. It means death. There's a sense in which you and I will never be killed until God has ordained for that moment to come. The point then is not to think about when we will die. The point is not to worry about it. Who adds anything to their life if they think about dying all the time? That's why Jesus in Matthew five, he says, hey, look, don't worry about tomorrow. Why? Tomorrow's going to be bad. It has enough trouble on its own. 
Because who is there to ultimately harm you while you are under the sovereign hand of the God of the cosmos? Okay, but what if I die? Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, if you are zealous for what is good and someone does ultimately harm you, you will be blessed. The book of Matthew does a great job also of describing what a blessing is um, in the Beatitudes when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who da 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 The true blessing to all of them is that they will be in the kingdom of heaven. At the end of our lives, we will stand before a holy and just God and we will be judged for our righteousness. The issue is not thinking of all of our good deeds and seeing if they outweigh the bad. The issue is that sin has so stained and marred our lives that we have no righteousness before a truly righteous father. The issue is that God is holy and we are not. And there are no unholy people in the kingdom of heaven. We need our sins to be wiped out and we need our sins to be taken from us for good. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has done exactly this on our behalf. The holiness of Jesus becomes the holiness of those who believe in the perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because in his life, Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. And at the judgment seat, Jesus, he would have gotten a well-done, good and faithful servant, come on in. But he gave up his physical life and his life of righteousness for us. And so now in the most mysteriously loving event in history, God's wrath on unholiness was placed on the most holy. And God's blessing of unity and harmony in heaven was somehow, by grace alone, placed on us. So now when we think about this question, now who is there to harm you? And even if you are harmed or maimed or persecuted or laughed at or burned at the stake, you will be blessed. From the mouth of Jesus in Matthew 5, he says this. Blessed are you when others revile you, are evil to you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So now we see the argument. The rhetorical question should stifle our fear of harm. But we still have to answer, okay, what does it mean to be zealous for what is good? Titus 2 Verse 11 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. To be zealous for what is good means that we have been saved by the grace of God into a zealousness for good. There is no making ourselves zealous for good. We are reborn into it. So how do we do it? In this grace, how do we do this? From our text, to be zealous for what is good, we follow these three commands. Have no fear, honor Christ, and always be prepared to make a defense. Have no fear, honor Christ, and always be prepared to make a defense. Let's look at the first one in verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, which is crazy. Have no fear of that that we just looked at. This can be understood in two ways because the literal translation is fear not their fear. So this can mean one, like do not fear what these men and women fear, which is what we find in Isaiah 12. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread of what they are in dread about. Things that unbelievers and persecutors are afraid of, we do not have to be afraid of those things. 
We do not have to be in dread of those things. Namely, just a big one, the judgment seat. <clears throat> but it also could mean to fear not the fear that they instill in you. Do not be afraid of what they might do to you. Which is why the second half of this says, do not be troubled. This is a command from God not to feel fear and not to worry or be anxious. How does one go about doing that? Because you know what never works for me? Telling someone that's worried not to worry about it. Like it just never works. That's horrible advice, by the way. Um, but points one and two are connected in this way because the answer to one is found in two because the text hits us with a contrast. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but. So don't do this, but do this instead. And so when we look through point two, we will see how to counteract worry and fear. Point two, honor Christ. Look at verse 15. But, contrast, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. With everything we have, we regard Christ as the holiest, most powerful, most valuable, most cherished and prized possession over all things and all people. Or simply, put Jesus in his proper place. The God-man is in a whole other bracket, a whole other category, and so we honor him as such. Why? Because if Christ is on the throne in our hearts, what fear can dominate us? If Christ is honored and set apart in our hearts as the most prized possession we could ever find, what is there to worry about? Paul says, uh, he's talking about this very thing in Philippians 1, verse 18. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. He's writing this from prison. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain because I get to be with Christ. What is there to worry about? What fear or fears tend to dominate your thinking? And are they legitimate? Fear is real. Anxiety and worry are real and subtly so, which makes them hard. But when you lift Christ up in your hearts as holy, are those fears legitimate? Is your worry not taking the throne seat and thus your joy? How do we do this? Because the truth is we cannot be guilted out of sinning. I don't know if you ever noticed that uh, our fear-based tactics, they never stop uh, sinning from happening. They never keep us from sinning. I might get caught. I might be seen. People might find out, which is funny enough, it's a worry, by the way, which is a sin. We cannot sin to stop sinning. That just makes no sense. Jesus, he's speaking to his disciples before uh, he's about to leave to go and be killed. So they don't really know what's going on. Jesus has the perspective on the whole thing. But um, they are scared and they're worried because they're like, no, you're not going to die. Like, we need you. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. But Jesus says to them in John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. The same word we find here. How do we counteract trouble and fear and worry? Believe in God, believe also in me. And then later in John 14, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, do not worry, neither let them be afraid. 
How do we live without fear? And how do we honor Christ as holy? We believe. We believe in the gospel again and again. Not because we need to be re-saved or re-justified or that we need to be made righteous all over again, but we believe in the gospel again and again in that we remember our redemption by the precious blood of Jesus. We believe in the gospel again and again because by it and it alone we truly live. However, the good news of the gospel is not just believing for believing's sake. It's not just to feel good and then go about sinning more. We believe again to be renewed in our sense of purpose. So when these people, when they get this letter and they're reading this for the first time, they're going to get a renewed sense of like, this is my identity. Here is where I'm supposed to be living. I'm in a place of worry and fear and it's really scary, but here is where I'm supposed to be living. What is our purpose? To glorify God and Savior and worship him as King and Lord and then live our lives for, for that purpose and then for the sake of those around us who they may get to worship the same God and Savior, that they may spend eternity with us too. This twofold mission is found in texts like uh, Romans 1.5. It says, we have received grace and apostleship to, here's the purpose, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, the glory of God among all the nations. Everyone. There's, there's the twofold purpose. There's the glory of God and then his people. We've received the true grace of God to live for the sake of the worship of the name of the, of the Savior of the world. And where the Father is worshipped, people have come to saving faith. That's why the great commandment is this, found in Matthew. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Glorify God and for the sake of other people. Our question is how? We've seen already in the past few weeks that uh, we're to bless those who are evil to us, but now it's for those who might ask, for those who see your life and they ask a question about it. Our response to the good news of the gospel here is where we find point three. Always be prepared to make a defense. Start back up in verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, nor be worried, even though they have a lot of reason to be. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. By God's design, this is something that happens in God's power. When believers live their lives, as what we've seen just in First Peter so far, people are going to ask about it. How do you have such good marriage? Why don't you want to go out and get drunk anymore? Why'd you take a pay cut to work with a bunch of kids? Why do you spend every Sunday morning at church? You're in the midst of cancer, yet you still have so much joy. What is it about you? I don't know what these questions are going to be. I don't think that you know, and it's not something that we should necessarily worry about. But this doesn't even have to come from unbelievers. It could be other believers, too, who are asking questions of us as as examples. Like, hey, how, how do you live your life of faith? And maybe they're being confronted with evil and sin and they just want to know what to do. And when anyone asks those questions, we are to be always prepared. 
whether at Starbucks or Walgreens or Kroger or at home or on vacation, to make a defense for the hope that is within us. Now notice quickly, it's defense, not offense. It is defense, not attacking. A Facebook post is most of the time viewed as an attack simply because no one asked. So how do we do this? The rest of the verse answers it. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Make your defense. When people ask you or when people are attacking you uh, and they're bucking up and they're throwing shots back at, at, sorry, when people are attacking you, we don't, uh, when they're asking us questions, we don't buck up and throw shots back at their belief system like, well, you're saying that about mine. Truly what you believe is crazy. No, by gentleness and respect and kindness and grace. Why? Why not respond in, in a harsh manner? They're, they're responding to me harshly. Second Timothy 2 says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So it's not that there's no correcting. There is correcting, just in gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Why is it that gentleness might lead someone to repentance and salvation? Why, why is that true? Because of what Romans 2 says. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It is not the tweet or the post or the debate or the anger of lashing out, not that those things are absolutely condemned, but it is our gentleness and respect and kindness that people see, they, they may see God's kindness and they may repent. This is why our response as a church to New York and now Virginia and whoever else, their new abortion laws, is to serve. We serve those who might have had an abortion. Or maybe they're thinking about it. Maybe they are sitting there and they think this is the only way out. We go and help. We mentor. We, we call Stillwater and say, hey, I want to help in any way I can. We make our defense in gentle and kind and respectable ways. But we also do it with a good conscience. Now, how does one even get a good conscience? In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, this is when consciences were awakened. It's not a good thing that we need a conscience to be able to determine between good and evil. We should know only good. So how did God reckon this for Adam and Eve? He provided a solution. To their violated consciences, he provided a solution by slaughtering an innocent animal to cover their nakedness. They have just sinned. Sin has, been, has entered into the world because of this action. And he says, you're going to have to leave now, but he covers them. In their shame and nakedness, he covers them. This is the exact same way you and I reach our good consciences. By the slaughtering of an innocent Jesus to cover our nakedness. By this Jesus, we now have something like 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins... 
He, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, including our consciences, from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, sin most definitely brings about a guilty conscience. And we can absolutely sit in despair and defeat in those moments. Maybe that's right now. But in Jesus, we have an absolute freedom to turn from that sin, to belief in Jesus yet again, and thus have a good conscience. We confess our sins. We repent. Why? Because we always want to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us. We do it with gentleness and respect. Verse 16, having a good conscience. Why? So that when, not if, you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Question. Do we want others to be put to shame? Is that a goal? If we are feeling good as a Christian in the moment, then no, absolutely not. But if we're honest, sometimes, yeah. But let's define it so that we know exactly what it is when we... Uh, what we mean when we use this verse, 1 Corinthians 15 says this. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul says this to put these men and women who are in this drunken stupor, to put them to shame. Why? That it might bring them out of their sleep that it might wake them up into repentance. For us to make a defense in order to put others to shame, that's a really good thing. To show, to wake them up to what they already probably know about God from what he has revealed in creation. And thus, the whole text comes back around to the beginning. This is a good work that we should be zealous for. If we have been truly saved, because this is a work of God to glorify himself and bring others into the family. He chooses you and I. He brings us out of darkness and into light that we may shine forth the light of salvation in the darkness of our neighborhoods, in the darkness of our schools, in the darkness of our communities, our jobs, all for the grander purpose of the glory of our great Father and the worship of this glory in the hearts and souls of every person. The good news of the gospel is the power of salvation for those who would believe. And the good news of the gospel is that by the power of the Holy Spirit that has been secured inside of everyone who will believe, that same Holy Spirit will uphold us and see to it, to making sure that everything we need is taken care of for us, like we don't have to worry, and then he will lift us up in the midst of suffering that's gonna come. All so that we may live this life for something greater than this life. For the glory of God. For the sake of other people. And one day, we will be completely and totally and finally perfect forever in heaven, sitting around the table with the triune God and with all those who we might have shown such kindness to. We might have shown such respect to, to put them to shame, yes, but with the purpose of bringing them out of that shame. Because the person that uh, feels that they have no shame, there's nothing to be saved from. 
And we will all be worshiping the Father in perfect glory where there will be no reviling or evil or slandering or anything like we just saw, but perfect life. So in the meantime, until that day does come, we remember the gospel. We remember the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that we may live in it. Because it is only by this power that we have that has been secured by the gospel, this Holy Spirit within us, do we live in such a way as this. We're going to take communion today. And as we do this, we remember. And so if you're part of the body of Christ, by faith, you're welcome to this table as family. I ask that you would remain in your seat, though, if either of these two things are true about you. If you are an unbeliever, or if you are in unrepentant sin. 1 Corinthians says you would be eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, and I don't want that for you. If you're in unrepentant sin, you just saw the goodness and kindness and mercy of your Father. Remember it today. Turn again back to it and return into fellowship with him by, by grace. Repent of your sins this morning again. Be free and refreshed in the grace that is already yours. Talk with your father during this time. And if you're an unbeliever, this is what Paul said. Wake from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. If you're an unbeliever, be ashamed. But do not stay there. Do not go on sinning. Turn from your sin and shame to belief in Jesus' finished work on the cross on your behalf. It is a free gift. It is a free grace to us all. Without Jesus, on the other side of this life, there is nothing but shame waiting for you for eternity. But in Jesus, there is immense grace. Believe in him today. For all of us, here's our prayer during this time. Father, we admit that we need this body and this blood to cover our sin and shame. Would you, by your grace, make us zealous for what is good and make us honor Christ above all? In Jesus' name, amen. Take your time to pray through whatever it is God has given you to pray through. Take your time to repent of your sins. And when you're ready, the elements are at the back of the room and we'll uh, grab those, bring them back to your seat and we'll take them all together here in a minute. The reason we take communion every Sunday is because it is a visual picture of the gospel. It is something to see, to help us remember the good news of the gospel. That by this body and this blood, alone do we have any strength to move on do we have any life any true grace to stand firm in 